0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. So what we are starting today is a series of messages of meditations on Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And if you joined us last time, we just dedicated our whole service to reading through uh, that entire book together, all 13 chapters, and we had 13 different people who had recorded a chapter very kindly for us. And it was really cool just to hear that book read in that way and to meditate on it as a whole together. And now we're, you know, rolling up our sleeves and starting to dig into some of the details and seeing what this letter which was written 2000 years ago would have, you know, the living voice of God speaking to us today. So this afternoon, we're going to be reading the first 11 verses of second Corinthians. And I'm going to share that on my screen. Um, and let's read the word of God together. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. On him, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. This is the word of God. So Corinth was, it's really a fascinating city. It's one of the largest cities that Paul ever visited, probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome itself and after the city of Alexandria. Uh, Corinth was originally a Greek city, but it had been destroyed by the Romans. And one of the very last acts of Julius Caesar before he was assassinated in 44 BC was to refound the city after it had lain abandoned for over 100 years. So Corinth really was much more of a Roman city than a Greek one, even though it was in Greece. And this is actually uh, an important detail because Corinth wasn't a city with a long history, with old families, with an established social order. It was a city of retired military people, of freed slaves, of migrant workers from all over the empire and beyond Uh, from expats and people from all over who were now making this city home. And therefore, Corinth had really high social mobility. It was a great place to kind of climb up in social status. But it also meant that you were competing with tens of thousands of other people who were trying to do the same thing. And we'll see uh, as we get into this book that all this jostling for status and for power and for honor Uh, really comes into play with the quite different way of the gospel that Paul is preaching. uh, Corinth was a port city. And if you look on the map, you'll see that it's in a very strategic place with two very deep harbors coming into it from the east and from the west. And so ships, instead of sailing the dangerous waters to the south of Greece, could come into the port on the western harbor. And they could either unload and transport their goods to a new ship on the other side or, in fact, they could lift their boat out of the water and push it over land on a path the Romans built to the harbor on the other side. So uh, Corinth is uh, a port city with all that entails, with all the wealth and commerce and also all the vices and crimes of port cities. Corinth was really a wild place. It was kind of the Amsterdam of the ancient world. And there was nothing so crazy or perverse that you could not find it in the city of Corinth. In fact, the Roman geographer Strabo tells us that the temple of uh, Aphrodite of Venus had over a thousand, you know, temple prostitutes, male and female, associated with it. And in Acts chapter 18, uh, Luke records how Paul left Athens and traveled northwards, probably by ship, to visit the city of Corinth for the first time. Not a very promising city, you would think, to preach the gospel, But Paul, while he was at Corinth, received a vision from God, and God told him, despite the discouragement and the opposition he was receiving, God said, Paul, I have many people in this city. I have a plan for this place, and I have people that I have chosen, and I am building something here by the power of the gospel. And so in obedience to this vision from God, Paul spent 18 months, a year and a half in Corinth, building up this church. And Corinth, the church in Corinth, was undoubtedly Paul's most dynamic and his most exciting congregation. It was socially diverse. There were extremely rich people. There were slaves. There were laborers. There was merchants, people from all kinds of classes. And it was no doubt ethnically diverse as well. People from all over the empire, from Spain and Ethiopia and regions beyond. All these uh, people coming together who have encountered Jesus and they're moving in the power of the spirit. They've been blessed with very gifted people like Priscilla and Aquila, and they've been blessed with some incredible gifts of the Holy spirit that you can read about in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So here in this sprawling metropolis, there's this new community of the spirit emerging, something totally new in this city. People who have had their lives radically transformed by the grace of Christ and who are moving in the power of the Holy spirit in a way that all the other churches uh, are looking to for leadership and an example. The church in Corinth is the most exciting and the most promising of all of all's, all of Paul's churches. It's also the most difficult and frustrating of all of his churches. Paul spent 18 months in the city and then he left to move on to different places. God was calling him to And for a variety of reasons, Paul's relationship with this church became frayed and very tense. Other leaders uh, moved in and rival factions grew up and people began to attack Paul and to attack his ministry. There was sin, there was idolatry, there was an excessive kind of freedom that led to licentiousness. And Paul himself is experiencing a lot of pain through this church. In fact, as we'll discover, Paul found himself deeply hurt and offended by the way people in this church treated him. And Paul had really poured his heart out for these people, and the temptations to bitterness must have been uh, enormous. And you really wonder, after all Paul experienced through this church— Uh, Why didn't he just cut his losses and move on? That's certainly what I would have done because if I was Paul, I would have thought, man, I've got enough stress in my life. I've got enough satanic opposition. I've got enough persecution. I've got enough suffering. I have more than enough stress without all this negativity that this church is causing me. Every time I receive news of them or get a letter from them, it's just causing me increased uh, anxiety and despair and frustration. It seems like the wisest course for my own mental health would just be to defriend this church, to block their texts and to go somewhere else where people appreciate me and where I have fruit for my ministry. Why waste my time on these people who are just a massive pain in the neck? That's what I would have done in Paul's case, but it's not what Paul does. Instead of withdrawing, Paul engages a very difficult situation and a very strained relationship. You'll find as you read this letter, and you might have noticed as we read it aloud together last week, it is probably the most personal and the most emotional of all Paul's letters. He doesn't just pour out his heart, he spills his guts in this letter. And in fact, it's almost a bit embarrassing to read because Paul... He opens himself up and he becomes completely vulnerable to these people. And he presses into this relationship without any guarantees. He's not going to receive just more pain from this letter. It's a very risky, very vulnerable thing that Paul is doing. Why would Paul do this? Why would he write this letter and why would Paul write this kind of letter? I think the opening couple verses, the greeting, give us three significant clues. One is simply the way that Paul talks about himself Paul, an apostle by the will of God. Paul had received a commission from the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He wasn't an apostle because it was a nice career choice, because he'd make lots of money and receive a lot of validation. It wasn't a job that he would really enjoy and that he'd actually have quite a bit of fun with. The son of God had personally commanded Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And then God had appeared to Paul in a vision to command him to press on with this relationship. So Paul has understood in his own heart, this is not... It's not an option for me. It's not a choice for me, whether I continue or not, because it's not about my will or my preferences. It's about the will of God. I've been called to do this. I've been commanded to do this. And he also recognized the people he was writing to were not just ordinary people. You'll see that Paul looks at them with the eyes of God. He addresses them as the church that's at Corinth, with all the saints, all of God's holy people, who are in the whole of Achaia, the province around Corinth. In the flesh, Paul would have seen this church as a collection of extremely aggravating people. But in the spirit, by faith, he recognized, No, wait a second, this is the church of God. These people belong to God. And God in his sovereignty and in his grace, has assembled a new family in the city, brothers and sisters who belong to one father. This is the church that Jesus Christ has purchased with his own blood. And even though these people don't always act in a very saintly way, although there's a lot of unholiness within this church, nevertheless, God has called these people saints. Saints. He set them apart. He's made them holy. He set them apart for his purposes. And so in faith, and it must have taken a lot of faith, Paul sees himself and he sees this church, not as they are just in the sphere of human relationships, but as they really are in Christ. And then Paul says to them, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul sees that it's not just, he's not just uh, an extraordinary person himself with an extraordinary calling. He doesn't just see that these are an extraordinary people. They're also under an extraordinary situation because they are under the favor of God. And Paul's calling whenever he visits them and whenever he writes to them is to be the voice of God's blessing, to speak grace and peace into the lives of these people. Now in this letter, especially toward the end of the letter, you'll see that Paul has lots of very hard things to say. He's honest, he's brutally honest, and he's got some stern rebukes for the sin in this congregation. But even those things are from the loving hearts of God. Paul knows, and he's reminding them that God is for you. He loves you. His grace and his peace are being showered upon you. And God wants the best for his own people. And by the spirit of God, Paul is able to see beyond his own hurts, beyond his own frustrations, beyond the pain of this relationship into God's supernatural purposes for this church. And you know, Paul will have a lot to say about himself and the strained relationship, but he begins with God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. I think that's really significant that Paul's starting point in this letter is theological. He doesn't begin with his personal feelings, his personal experiences, his personal relationships his personal ideas. Paul's bedrock is the nature of God. Everything goes back to God and goes back to who God is. It's not just theological, it's doxological. And that's a very long word that simply means it's about worshiping God, not just talking about him. Praise be to this God. Blessed be this God. It's really why we began this afternoon and why we begin every Sunday with singing songs of praise to God. Because worship is something that recalibrates us, that recenters us, that reminds us that we're not in the middle of everything, God is. And so as we sing these songs of worship to God and also to each other, addressing each other in songs of praise, the spirit of God takes all of us disoriented, confused people and he takes us by the shoulders, and he faces us in the right direction, the Godward direction. And so Paul celebrates that God is the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. We're not dealing with a harsh, demanding God who's shouting at people. We're not dealing with a distant, uninvolved God who doesn't care one way or the other. This is a God who cares deeply, amazingly, about us little creatures that he's made. The God who has shown that supremely by giving his own son to rescue us from sin and death. And this is not just, you know, um, a doctrinal theory from Paul. He didn't get this from a systematic theology textbook. This is coming out of Paul's own life, this realization, because he had encountered God in Years of pain and of difficulty and frustration and suffering. And Paul had discovered that in his times of complete weakness and total loneliness, um, he'd felt God drawing near to pour his love into Paul's heart. And he couldn't help himself erupting in spontaneous worship when he had experienced that. Uh, so here's Paul having gone through a lifetime of experiencing um, great difficulty and suffering. And then through that, in his own experience, he had felt uh, God drawing near, coming close to pour his love into Paul's heart. And his most profound and intimate experiences of the grace of God came in the most hard and difficult experiences of his life. And when Paul thinks about that, he can't help erupting in spontaneous worship to God. Now, this way of relating to God, of looking for the light of God to shine in the darkest places, that's not the way of the flesh. It's not the way of worldly religion. And in fact, as Paul knew, this was a huge stumbling block to the Corinthians. Their whole culture was about success and prosperity, about climbing the ladder and moving up in the world. And so what they were looking for was a religion that would give them, um, you know, the boost to this next level in life. That would give them the power to achieve what their culture and their own hearts were telling them to pursue. And that's why the church in Corinth was so attracted to all Paul's rivals who showed up after him, the super apostles. These were the kind of ministers that they really wanted. Glamorous, successful, wealthy, good-looking people. The kind of people that we all aspire to be. The super apostles were highly Instagrammable. They had good tans. They had beautiful teeth. They had expensive fashion sneakers. The super apostles, they were the kind of people playing basketball shirtless with Justin Bieber and posting that on social media. They were having dinner with the political and business leaders in Corinth. They were well-connected. And not only that, these were inspiring, motivational speakers. And you would leave church in Corinth after the super apostles spoke, and you would feel incredible about yourself. And you would... Feel like some of their success and glamour and power had rubbed up, had rubbed off on you. And by comparison, frankly, Paul was well, the guy was just he was just a bit of an embarrassment. The worst thing was that Paul he talked about himself and he acted like a slave. He had no sense of cultivating the right people and connections. Paul was, in fact, not a great speaker. He wasn't very inspiring. The guy was just, he was just depressing. And his ministry wasn't a magnet for success. In fact, the news they received from Paul is that he just seemed to suffer one mishap after another. And this uh, obstacle, this stumbling block, is one of the biggest issues that Paul is dealing with in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians talks about suffering more than any other book, any other letter of Paul's in the New Testament. And the surprising thing is that Paul, they might have been embarrassed about Paul and his suffering. He is not embarrassed at all. He doesn't try to explain away suffering or to get God off the hook. In fact, bizarrely, Paul glories in his sufferings, his humiliation and his weakness. And Paul's insight is that Christianity is not like every other religion. He's not saying, oh, it's like everything else, just more effective at getting you what you want. Paul's saying, you know what, we're following our supreme leader. The man we follow is a Jewish peasant who was tortured and then executed as a slave before being miraculously raised from the dead. It's a V-shaped story, the story of Jesus, the God who, instead of climbing upwards, descends to the very lowest place and takes on himself the form of a servant and then is vindicated by God and glorified by him. And therefore, if you are a Christian, if you are a little Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus, that means that demands that you embrace the story of Jesus as the pattern for your own life. At the heart of Paul's spirituality, if we can use that word, is fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. Verse five, we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. You want the abundant life, Paul says, here it is, abundant participation in the sufferings of Jesus. Because God had, so radically changed Paul's heart that what Paul longed for most, what Paul most deeply craved was not success, even ministry success. What Paul longed for was Jesus himself. He just wanted to be as close to Christ as possible. And he would pay whatever cost was needed to come close to Jesus. And Paul realized As he went on and matured in grace, he realized that all the abuse and the pain and the suffering of his ministry was not an accident. It was the Spirit's way of knowing Jesus more deeply. I want to know Christ, Paul says to the Philippian church. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow... Attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Sharing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And man, I love the second part of that, right? I'd love to fast forward to that. I mean, participation in a resurrection, power, victory. Yes, please. We don't have to love Jesus to want those things. We don't need to be born again by the spirit to want power and victory and resurrection. That's not the real test of our discipleship. The real test of our discipleship, the real test of whether we are truly following Jesus or just idolatry under a different name, the real test is, are we willing to participate with Christ in suffering? Are we willing to obey his call to take up our cross and follow him? That is the real test. Now, of course, there is a wide variety of suffering that we're called to experience in this life. There's the suffering that comes from being persecuted for the sake of the gospel, and Paul knew plenty of that. There's also the suffering of obeying Jesus in other ways, the sacrifice that comes from saying no to the flesh and the lusts and cravings of the flesh and choosing to deny ourselves out of love for Jesus and to care for other people. And of course, there's also just the ordinary sufferings of life in this present age, in this present evil age, as we wait for the coming of Jesus. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. There will be suffering. There will be affliction. There will be many troubles in this world. There's simply no way of avoiding it. The paradox is that's the only way to experience New life. The only way you can have life and fruitfulness and abundance and joy is by going through the valley of suffering and weeping and humiliation. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, we're heirs of God and co heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Yes. We get to experience the empty tomb and the joy of Easter Sunday, but only if we go through Good Friday in our own lives and experience the cross of Jesus in our own experience. The story of Jesus by the Holy Spirit becomes our own story. And Christ, he, he wants to rewrite our own, The cultural, personal expectations that we have, that we're given, that are imposed on us of what a life worth living looks like. And there's many different cultures, uh, even in this meeting today, but they're all about seeking success and security in this world. But as we get closer to Jesus, and as we walk with him, we find ourselves being pulled into the gospel story ourselves. And we can even say that Jesus calls us to perform the script of the gospel in our own life, to perform the gospel in our own life. Now, I want to be careful in saying that. I'm not saying that my own pain and suffering has atoning power. You know, I'm not paying for my sins. You're not paying for your sins or anyone else's. Only the cross of Christ does that. So our suffering is very different in that way. But I am saying... On the basis of Paul and the rest of the New Testament, that as we follow Jesus, walking in step with the spirit, our own story merges with him on the way of the cross and the empty tomb. Let me give you a definition of Christian spirituality in five words. Here's how I think Paul would say spirituality looks like in five words. Dying and rising with Christ. Dying and rising with Christ is what Christian spirituality looks like. And my question for myself and all of us today is, are we awake to that? Because I think, if we're honest, our default is to be very much like the Corinthians, to use Jesus and his power to really pursue our own idolatrous dreams the things of the flesh, what everyone else in the world is seeking for in their own ways. And our temptation is to use prayer and miracles and uh, the power of God not to do what he is calling us to do, but what our own hearts crave. And the question that Paul confronts us today as an apostle who has God's authority to speak to us a couple thousand years later is are we willing To turn from those false stories and to embrace the story of Jesus for our own life. Are we willing to actually embrace difficulty and suffering out of love for Jesus? And are we able to find significance and meaning even in what seems like frustration and failure? This is true in, in Paul's life and in Paul's ministry Doubly so, because Paul has a special calling as an apostle of the good news of Jesus. And how could Paul possibly preach the cross authentically if he wasn't also living the cross? Yeah, you can't preach the gospel without living that story yourself. Not in a way that is genuinely going to compel people by the spirit. GB Card He said this, the cross has demonstrated that reconciliation is a costly business. Reconciliation is costly. And therefore, whenever this gospel of reconciliation is preached, there is going to be a price to be paid in suffering. And God is going to call us to demonstrate the cost of his love, even as we preach the freeness of God's grace. And so Paul found himself sharing the sufferings of Christ, sharing abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. But that is not the whole story because Paul says that just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. It's not just about suffering. And, you know, Christians were not meant to be Miserable, depressed people who have some kind of sick obsession with pain and whipping ourselves and trying to go to the lowest place possible because we're in love with humiliation and death. We're going to that place not because we love suffering and humiliation and death, but because we love Jesus. And even in suffering, I think we can say, especially in suffering, Paul encountered abundant, overflowing comfort in Christ. Comfort. And you'll see in our text, if you glance back to it, that word appears 10 times in these few short verses. You know, in English, you know, the word comfort, our associations with it, it's a very soft word, isn't it? We think of, you know, a comforting cup of tea, a warm blanket, a box of tissue, someone coming alongside you and embracing you. But even in English. Uh, you can see in the word comfort, there's this word fortis, which means strength, like a fortress. Yeah. Uh, It's interesting. If you look at, if you ever, if you ever seen the Bayo tapestry, the tapestry that was woven to celebrate William, the conqueror crossing the English channel in 1066 and conquering England um, on that very long tapestry is a picture of William on his horse. And he's behind his troops and he's poking them with his spear. And the caption underneath in old English says, William comforts his troops. Now you wouldn't think that a sharp point in your backside was very comforting, but you can see that word really meant something like encouragement. Yeah. William was giving his troops, his troops strength to proceed with, you know, a a pointed prod in the rear. And so maybe, you know, a better translation possibly than comfort in these verses is something like encouragement. Now, of course, we don't want to make the fallacious assumption that Paul is writing in English, even old English. He's writing in Greek, obviously. And his Greek word has the same robust sense. God gives strength when he comforts. Of course, God is kind and he's gentle and he's sympathizing. I don't want to make it sound like God is abusing, uh, abusive, but... The comfort of God doesn't leave us wallowing in self-pity. God's comfort gives us strength to wipe our tears, to blow our nose, to get up and keep on going. As Isaiah says, God, when he comforts, he strengthens the feeble hands. He steadies the knees that are about to give way. Okay, so that's kind of what comfort is and how it works. But What does comfort say? How does does God comfort us? How did did God comfort Paul when he was suffering? Well, I think in the first place, as we've alluded to, um, Paul was comforted when he suffered by realizing that he was experiencing fellowship with Jesus. The Spirit assured him that Paul's sufferings were not accidental, that God wasn't torturing him, that God hadn't forgotten him, Paul's suffering was deeply meaningful because it was the place of nearness to Jesus. And even in our darkest places, when the Spirit opens our eyes, we can see the footsteps of Jesus in that place. It's the way of the cross. And when we suffer in faithfulness to him, we're being drawn into a deeper participation in the life of Christ. And we're knowing Jesus in a way we would never know him if our life was simply pure sailing and continuous victory all the time. A profound fellowship with Jesus. That's the first um, kind of comfort that God gives in suffering, I think. The second one is learning a deeper dependence on God. If you jump forward into verse eight and verses eight and nine, Paul kind of expresses this in terms of his own experience. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. That's like the Western third of what's now Turkey. We were were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we'd received the sentence of death. Now, Paul doesn't explain exactly what happened uh, in this experience, some, it was something crushing, some experience that nearly destroyed him. Now, Paul wasn't, you know, a gentle flower. He wasn't a weakling. He had a long list of terrible things that happened to him in his life. But whatever he experienced here, it was, it was far beyond anything he'd gone through before. It nearly finished him off, in fact, and it brought him to a place of total weakness and despair. I think it's important to notice, by the way, that Paul is, is completely honest about his own lowness and his own weakness. He's not trying to present himself as some kind of spiritual superhero who's always full of incredible joy and faith. Paul goes through depression and despair just like any ordinary Christian does. Even more so, in fact. Paul's not writing to impress anyone here about himself. It's all about God. And Paul's experience is a bit like the people of Israel on the banks of the Red Sea in the book of Exodus. Trapped, helpless, about to be finished off by the enemy. But Paul goes on to write, and this is a verse well worth underlining, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This happened not that we would rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. Whatever Paul, whatever terrible thing Paul experienced, he received a miraculous deliverance from God. Paul didn't emerge from this suffering um, by his own strength, by cleverly employing his own resources and his own cleverness to wriggle out of this. The whole thing was totally from God. But notice that Paul doesn't just ascribe the deliverance to God. He also recognizes that God's hand was behind the suffering. Why did the suffering happen? Why did this terrible, near-death, despairing experience happen? This happened so that we might not rely on ourselves but on God. There was actually a, a purpose, a divine purpose behind the deadly peril, to destroy Paul's self-confidence and to increase his reliance on God. Now that's a profound insight. And Paul is teaching us, I think, that unless and until we come to the end of our own resources, where we open the drawer and it's just empty, there's nothing left for us to do. Until we come to the end of our own resources, we will never know the exhilaration of God's deliverance. Unless the people of Israel had experienced that panic and helplessness beside the Red Sea, they would never have known what it was like to turn around and to see the dark waters of the Red Sea dividing and a dry path appearing. And that awesome miracle of salvation was not something any human Cleverness could have devised. It was completely from God. And so Paul learned that these terrible experiences in his life, they happen to destroy our foolish self-reliance and to, to push us, to force us to do what we're so hesitant to do, to lean our weight Entirely on God. And our father is like a good parent, like Michelle and I have to do with our own kids, to push them into uncomfortable experiences they would never do if it was up to them, so that they can grow just like God wants us to grow. And to be honest, in my own uh, laziness and desire for the comfort of the flesh, I don't want to be in positions where I have to completely trust in God. I use all my cleverness, all my cunning, all my resources, all my ingenuity. And I'm constantly deploying them to keep myself and my family from any position where our only hope is in God. Yeah, I don't want to get myself in that place. I hate to have my back to the Red Sea with the hosts of Pharaoh coming before me. I don't want to be in that place. It's deeply uncomfortable. And maybe the same is for you. And my flesh is just scrambling as far away from that kind of uh, uncomfortable position of weakness as it can. But our loving father wants us to understand that is the only place we're ever going to get to sing and dance with Miriam on the other side. Yeah. And our good father is not being cruel when he puts us in that position, much as we might accuse him of that when we're in it. He's pushing his reluctant children into the place of true growth and ultimate joy to learn what it means to really rely completely on God and experience how God comes through to deliver his waiting people. So fellowship with Jesus, depending on God. And here's, I think, a third reason, although it's the first one that Paul lists, Third encouragement, third comfort in suffering is that God uses our suffering to help other people. Verse 4, God comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. You know what Paul realizes? It's not, it's not just my personal story. We're all part of something much bigger than just ourselves. We're members of the family of God, where we hold all things in common, not just material possessions. Yeah, we're called to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And I think there's something something powerful in the loneliness of suffering to be cared for by another brother or sister who has experienced the same thing. And you you probably know if you've gone through something difficult in your life that it's just so feeble when a Christian friend or even a pastor tries to to understand and tries to encourage you, but they don't know. They've never experienced that. And their words, they're well-meaning words, but they're not very helpful. In fact, often their clumsy words are quite unhelpful and you have to kind of shut them out. And ignore that because they just have not walked this particular path of suffering with you. And so they're not able to comfort you very effectively. But it's so different, isn't it? When someone comes alongside you and they say to you, you know what, I, I also know what it's like to struggle with mental illness, or I was also sexually abused, or we also lost a baby. And I know my story is not identical to yours, but I think I have some understanding of what you're going through. I just want to share with you, you know, how God met me in that experience and how God healed me. And man, if you have, you know, things just open up when someone who has gone through that same suffering comes alongside of you. And it's actually, I think, a profound experience of our sympathetic high priest who understands human weakness and pain, of Jesus himself ministering comfort to someone that he has called to walk this path before us. And there's a special awareness we're given of the love of God in those conversations, an awareness of how generous and how costly God's love is because it has come at the price of someone else, another brother or sister. It's come at the price of deep pain in their own experience. And now they're caring for us and we're experiencing the nearness and the compassion and the comfort of God in our own life. And also given the realization, the privilege that God is calling us to do the same thing, to pass on this overflowing abundant comfort to those who are behind us, who are also suffering, who are also feeling discouraged and despairing and lonely, and that we might be uh, we might have a special way of ministering to them. You know and when the people of God are experiencing this kind of fellowship, the fellowship of those who suffer together, who pray together, who are comforted together, man, that is deeply powerful. And that is what the family of God is meant to be. And that's what this church family is called to be. And reading this passage, uh, I'm aware that TICF has a lot of room to grow in this regard. I think we have God is calling us to really extend ourselves and being the kind of people who share suffering and who share comfort in a way that we're not really doing. And this kind of um, family life, this kind of deep sharing of pain and comfort, it can't happen if we just show up for the service, if we just log on to Zoom and log off and we don't bother cultivating relationships uh, beyond just consuming some worship and a message together. Jesus is calling us to a different kind of uh, way of relating and a different kind of story. He's calling us to an abundant life, it's true, a life overflowing with suffering, but also one overflowing with the comfort of the gospel, the comfort of Jesus himself. And I guess our question is, that we all need to be asking ourselves is, is this the kind of life that we actually want? Are we willing to embrace this kind of life? Or are we continuing to buy into the lives of the world and our culture, and quite frankly, our own flesh, a life of success and ease and unbroken victory? Being willing to follow Jesus into suffering, that is a supernatural miracle. It's really impossible apart from a huge work of God in our own hearts, because we're all backing away as fast as we can in the flesh from any kind of pain. And really the only thing that can possibly overcome our selfishness is a deep experience of the love of God in Christ. Because Jesus too had every reason to back away from suffering. He was in the position of supreme comfort and supreme power and supreme glory. And yet for the love of weak people and sinful people, in fact, rebellious and infuriating people, people who had not just strained, but broken and shattered their relationship with him, Jesus chose to engage. He chose to come down, to enter into the darkness, to descend, to take on himself the form of a slave, and to die on the cross for us. Jesus did that joyfully because he loves you. He wants to know you. He wants to be in relationship with you. He's calling us to do the same thing for him. Not to abuse us, not to punish us, but because he wants us to experience that only those who are willing to give up their lives, their very selves for Jesus, will find their true self in him. So, man, we need prayer, do we not? Just like Paul. Uh, requests of the Corinthians in the last verse of our text. We need our faces lifted up in prayer for ourselves and for each other. So let's pray now that God would help us receive this word into our own lives. And I want to pray a very short prayer from the Book of Common Prayer written 500 years ago. uh, One Well, worth praying again and again, and I'll share it in the chat in in a minute. Let's bow our heads and pray this prayer Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.